We are here today with Saida Disley, uh, entrepreneur, author of The Emergence of the Sensual Woman and Survivor of Rape. Saida, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Jordan. It's such a pleasure to be here with you. Thank you. So the first question I'd like to pose to you is what are you currently doing or what have you ever done to advance the public interest and why? I love this question. My passion for the last two decades has been to bring to light to women specifically that their bodies is a great place to be. And I've done this in in many different ways, but the, the most important way is to invite them to explore their sensuality and their sexuality and their bodies in a really safe and grounded way. Hello, and welcome to Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we have been interviewing politicians, activists, advocates, and others since 2016 with the intention of ennobling public service, creating a platform for positive civil discourse, and facilitating dialogue with difference. This show is the antidote for those who are tired of hearing about what's going wrong with the world. We showcase people just like you who are working to leave the world better than they found it. And that's good news. And now a word from former President John F. Kennedy with his views on public service. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I'll remind you that this show is made possible by viewers like you. If you appreciate what we're doing here at Public Interest Podcast and enjoy this episode, please contribute $1 at publicinterestpodcast.com. And to express our gratitude, we offer a few freebies to our supporters. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Today's show is brought to you by BarkBox. Uh, BarkBox basically delivers four to six treats uh, for dogs every single month about a, around a surprise theme. So some of the themes I thought were kind of fun were uh, Jurassic Bark, where everything is kind of uh, dinosaur-themed, or New York City, uh, Throwback Thursday, Sniffin' Safari. So a lot of fun uh, every month to just get a few treats in the in the mail for your dog. I know that I grew up with a dog. We have a golden retriever right now. And uh, as much as he loves his sticks and tennis balls, uh, when he gets a new toy, he uh, loves tearing it up for the 30 seconds that it lasts. Uh, pretty destructive dog. So anyway, um, if you go uh, to getbarkbox.com slash public interest, you get a one free extra month of BarkBox. So if you use that special URL referencing public interest podcast, just go to getbarkbox.com slash public interest. And when you sign up, you'll get a free extra month of BarkBox. Enjoy. You speak about sexual sovereignty particularly within the context of sexual sovereignty being a human right. Can you elaborate upon what sexual sovereignty is, uh, why uh, women need to be taught that their body is a wonderful, safe place, um, and how you go about doing that? Absolutely. So the first thing I want to say about sexual sovereignty, it's an idea that came to me through working with women across the globe. And what was happening in in this... uh, exploration because that's what it was i'm a psychologist i'm also trained with uh, body movement and different types of practices somatic practices so the invitation for women was to come home to their bodies through um, learning new ideas kind of a reorientation of our mindset that the body isn't sin that the body is actually a great place to be that their sensuality and sexuality isn't bad or wrong or evil, especially if there's been trauma involved. 
and that they could actually learn to enhance their hormones and actually enhance their well-being without any drugs or any other types of uh, substances and just do it through breath and do it through body awareness. So sexual sovereignty came as a result of teaching a lot of different women and realizing, wow, what's actually happening here is a woman is claiming her body as her own. It's her own sovereign space. Mm -hmm. And she gets to decide what happens to her fertility, with her pleasure, with her sexuality, her sensuality. And that's on her own terms and no one else's. And that's why the term sovereignty came in sexual sovereignty because specifically I work with sexuality and I think it's a very important important part of what we're exploring here in the world especially right now with what's happening with women coming forward with all the different levels of trauma that are being exposed then the concept of sexuality and sexual sovereignty I think is really really crucial because as a collective we don't actually regard our own body as something that we have as our own in the human birth rights, when we look at what the rights are when, when they were chartered and drafted up, you have the right to work, the right to rest, the right to get married, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You do not actually specifically have the right to your own body. And I think collectively that has an impact. So if we were to claim that our bodies are truly our own and to behave accordingly, which means being responsible, understanding what it is to have a sexuality, etc., Uh, it would really change how we would view um, one another and interact with one another, especially in the cases of abuse, uh, slavery, and um, the sex trade. So, Saida, uh, you say that we don't have a right to our own body. At least in the United States, uh, when you mention slavery, the 14th Amendment, I believe, abolishes slavery um, to the U.S. Constitution. But you say that there is no... You work internationally, and you're Canadian yourself. There's no right to your own body... I wonder uh, if you could elaborate on how you believe that is being violated. So where do people believe that they don't have a right to their own body and, 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 and why would you need to assert that as an as a articulated right? Yeah, thank you. Great question. It, a simple example would be when an institution or government determines for an individual what they do with their fertility. And so there are issues like this, even in the United States, that uh, a woman cannot decide for herself in some areas. I think some states are okay with it, but in some areas they're not, uh, with the issue, of, say, of abortion. Now, what's interesting for me about that is that it's a, it's a governing body determining what is happening with someone's fertility. If we were to have that across the board, that would also mean that uh, the male fertility would be regulated, and it's not. So I find that kind of an, an interesting issue. In other parts of the world, uh, a woman's body really isn't her own. It's the property of her partner, her family, and she has no capacity to decide what is going to happen to her body. We look at that in terms of um, children being forced to marry their rapists in some countries, um, women being forced into marriage in other types of countries, these kinds of things. So the right to our own body, the right to decide is actually very important in terms of self-respect, in terms of respecting one another, in terms of creating a culture 
I think a lot of people would like to have a culture that that is a lot more relaxed. There is less sexual violence, less violence against women and children, um, and even against men. So the first thing that I see in that is we first have to respect our own bodies. And in all the teachings that I've done, it's, it's actually quite rare, Jordan, to find someone who has profound respect for their own body. And I think that's just a, a socially conditioned idea. We're not even taught to respect it. Uh, for example, it's not that we're taught to disrespect it, but it's just not in the collective to regard our own body as something wonderful. Uh-huh. So, uh, Saida, could you tell me what it looks like and what it means to respect your own body? Absolutely. So, so one of the ways, I'll just speak specifically with sexuality, one of the ways to respect my own body is to really know what I desire and what I want and to be able to communicate that and then to have clear boundaries and to speak that clearly. When I don't understand that, then there are a lot of things that can happen. For example, I go on a date and it's going well, except for the person starts to touch me. And I've not welcomed that touch, but I'm I'm not comfortable enough to say, hey, that's not really what I want. And so I stay silent. And then the date progresses. There may not be a, a it may not escalate to date rape, but it's just an uncomfortable evening because the touches increase and my discomfort is obviously not enough of a signal. So self-respect would be to go, that's not okay by me. Um, I'm not interested in being touched right now. I'm really enjoying the state, but I'm just not interested in being touched right now and having that level of self-responsibility and communication, which we don't really have. We don't really, we teach wonderful things in terms of physical education, like sports. We teach, you know, getting better at our mentality through all the different Subjects we learn in school, to a degree, a little bit of emotional maturity, not that much. Uh, but sexual maturity mm, doesn't really exist currently in our culture. So you uh, mentioned in the introduction have undergone uh, sexual violence as a victim of rape. Uh, I'd like to ask you about the your experience recovering from rape and what sort of support you needed and how that led to you becoming an advocate for uh, sexual sovereignty. Thank you, Jordan. Yeah, that was a it was a surprising moment in my life. So I want to give you a little background because I was the type of person who was brought up in a really healthy way around her body and sexuality. So I didn't have bad experiences initially, but it was a man that I knew, and I was um, lovers with him. So that was another shock when you trust somebody, and that happens. The, what happened and the reason it was so uh, life-changing for me is that I actually nearly died from the experience. So by the time I got myself back to Canada, I had been in the Caribbean at the time that it happened, I was told I had about two weeks to live because I'd contracted a PID infection from the experience. That's pelvic inflammatory disease. And uh, at the time when I was told this, I was in a religious hospital And so I was actually considered a sinner and not treated very well. So what would have been fantastic for me right from the get-go is even just the hospital staff having a little bit more compassion and helping me understand my situation. That would have been amazing. That did not happen. Um, Thankfully, I had a great network of friends. But what really transformed me was understanding and choosing, because I had two weeks to live, 
but I actually still did have a choice, even though it was a doctor's or my surgeon's uh, determination when we came out of the surgery that there was nothing she could do for me. I got to choose, and I actually did choose life. And that choice was very powerful, Jordan. And it led me to go on a journey of self-healing where I discovered some incredible practices that come from the Chinese culture, the Taoist culture. And I pursued those very strongly, so I rehabilitated my whole body. And through those practices, was able to develop my own method because some of the things uh, that I was exposed to were not working for me. So I had to really design my own method. And that method healed me completely. And then I started teaching women. And women just knew that I knew something. They kept asking me to teach them. And that's how it started, very organically, very naturally. So I got to share what I had learned, what I had embodied on my journey of coming back home to myself. And it was so successful that it just caught like wildfire fires, pardon me, uh, and went across the globe very, very quickly. So, Saida, you say that you healed completely by your own method. I'm interested, uh, in case anybody listening to this podcast episode has ever uh, undergone sexual violence or knows anybody who has gone through sexual violence, and I think uh, one in four women in America have undergone sexual violence, so this might be quite relevant to our audience. I'd like to know what society can do, what sort of laws can be passed, uh, what sort of processes need to be followed uh, as somebody is recovering from rape. I'm wondering if the prosecution of the rapist was adequate or inadequate, if it was even helpful or relevant, and if there's anything uh, perhaps related to the tax structure of that religious hospital, or is there any sort of thing that we can Mm -hmm. do to ameliorate the uh, deleterious effects of sexual violence for the victim? I believe that accountability is really important. If there's a way to allow the person who's victimized to have a voice and be heard and then to hold accountable the person that was involved in the trauma. This is not always um, the case in a lot of times because I... In my case, I meet nine out of ten women who've been abused. I think it's just because they're drawn to the work. And in most of their cases, they, even though they, the ones who actually said something, because a lot of them don't feel safe enough to even say something. So if something in the structure of the law, of the social system, perhaps with social workers, or somehow that it's okay and it's safe to come forward with that information, number one, Two, that when it does come forward, that the victim isn't considered uh, crazy or saying untruths until proven otherwise. Because that's normally how a victim of sexual violence is treated. And we have to prove that it actually happened and that it was actually... I think there's in some cases you have to prove that the level of violence was high enough to even... um, fit under the label of sexual violence. So I think we need to relook at how we define sexual violence and how we structure the the beginning steps for, for people to come forward and be able to feel safe, to share what happened, and then the accountability. I don't believe in shaming people, but I do believe that people need to be held accountable and perhaps the accountability needs to be a little bit more direct. 
So when you for say those you, who are involved in the trauma, when you say you want to bring the perp- you want to make the perpetrator accountable for his or her actions, but you don't believe in shaming. Yes. Does what does that look yep. like? Does it mean that you would like to see the perpetrator incarcerated? It's a it's a tough question. I I, I here's the thing that happens when when perpetrators or anyone who does something and is shamed, what that does is there's no room for that person ever to choose to change, to have the opportunity to make right, to have the opportunity to evolve and Can grow. Can sexual violence ever be made right? I don't know. You can't, uh, you can't condone the act. Um, I've never you know, been the perpetrator of it, so I don't know if it's possible to change, but I'm imagining that people who do sexual violence, a large portion of them were actually victims of sexual violence prior. Um, but so as a there has of- to be a way to, to bring accountability and then to have conversations. I do believe they need to, there is something that we need to do for that accountability. But just to imprison someone, uh, I don't know that they, it's going to solve the problem long term. I think this is a problem of how we view sexuality as a culture. As a victim of sexual violence yourself, is there anything now or in the last 25 years that the perpetrator of that violence against you could do or could have done that would have somehow ma- made you feel better or helped you heal or somehow reduce the violence of that event? Is there anything that he could have done? Yes. So my healing was my own, and I really claimed that for myself. What would have been wonderful is to know that he would never do it again. And that I, I don't know, Jordan, and I lost contact with the person. Um, I don't know what his behavior was post my experience with him but even just to expose him to the whole community because I don't think his community knew what happened and to allow for him to just own his actions and then to make it right by not doing it again but a lot of times these things go unchecked and they can as you said make the same choice over again which is something I would prefer not so, by the same person. So, Saida, in 2017, as you well know, there have been a slew of sexual harassment claims, um, and there's been uh, a lot of backlash uh, against individuals who purportedly have abused their positions of power and authority over the last four decades uh, to uh, inflicting acts of viol- sexual violence or harassment uh, against against women. So. My question is, is it possible that any perpetrator of sexual violence was unaware that he or she was committing sexual violence at the time of the incident? That's a tough question to ask because I don't know, you know, each individual. What I'll say is let's go back to something even more away from the extreme violence into something casual. And I think that a lot of us, casually disrespect another person's physical space. And I will say that um, I've been out at a party and I've had men reach under my skirt and grab my ass, for example. 
Um, that's not really an act of sexual violence in that I, I don't feel like I'm really hurt. I'm just annoyed and frustrated that the person doesn't respect me and has invaded my space. But though that's where it starts. And so, you know, for me, when those incidents have happened, I've created a scenario, I've actually brought attention to it, and hopefully that changed the behavior. I don't know if it does. Can you elaborate more on how you call attention to that? I know that at least in the Washington, yes, D.C. area, there, there's, a, there's an advertising campaign in the me- underground subway metro system that says if you see something, say something, and sexual harassment is yes. unwanted. If someone's listening, yes. and, and, and they know that maybe they'll go to a party and they'll be groped, how do you call attention? Yes, I. Um, what's he- really important here is to get over being the nice girl. Women are uh, mostly all conditioned to be nice girls. You can't be a nice girl in that moment. So I use my voice. I raise my voice. I have at times, Jordan, actually punched people in the face if it's if what is happening is um, very scary for me, and it has been. So obviously, you can tell that. I've had several accounts of these um, types of incidents. So I use my voice. I engage another person. I will even get another man involved. I'm like, hey, this person's doing this to me. I, I don't like it. I need help. And most of the time, the reaction has been helpful, where the person's been asked to leave or thrown out of the party or, you know, whatever. Uh, it's never happened that the person's apologized but at least they were removed and weren't continuing with that behavior, which is unfortunate because I think it would be amazing to live in a society where if you suddenly realize that the action that you took isn't appropriate, you could own up to it and say, I'm really sorry, that was inappropriate, and then leave. But that is asking a lot um, in a society that doesn't have a lot of sexual maturity at this point. Just to be clear, uh, in case anyone's listening, because you did just say that you've reacted with physical violence yourself. Uh, is, yes. Is that legal? I don't know if it's legal, but the times that I've used that violence, I was about to be raped. Um, mm. So I chose to use violence to get the person away from me, which worked so it's uh, well. And, uh, and I feel it very strongly that if your life is threatened, if something like that's going to happen... Mm-hmm boundaries have been crossed and you do what you need to do to get away from it it means smashing someone's nose i don't have an issue with that um i think all women and and people even children should be taught a level of self-defense and in self-defense sometimes you smash a person's nose so that the person stops i'd rather see that happen than have to go through quietly go through a rape because that is um horrific and very hard to recover from. It's quite a traumatic experience. So uh, we're talking about the sexual harassment hashtag Me Too movement uh, in society right now. And as, as I mentioned, more individuals uh, with greater uh, in frequency are, are being brought to, to account for their past actions. Do you have any insight as to why this is happening now, uh, why it hasn't happened before? I, I suppose it may have something to do with President Donald Trump, but I'd like to hear your opinion uh, and uh, what it indicates about our society um, more generally. Yeah, another fantastic question. I do feel if, if there has been a gift of this presidency, it has been to wake people up on so many different fronts, including 
the uh, personal space and uh, the respective sexuality. So I feel that that is definitely part of the reason that we are in that climate, that we can use our voices, that people are waking up going, hey, this is not okay, not only about physical, sexual things, but about other things, but we'll stick to this topic here. And so I, I love that we are using our voices. What I'd love to see in the use of the voice is a conversation, and this involves everybody, it involves you, it involves me, it involves men, it involves women, is what's next. So we get to use our voice, we finally get to be heard, we get to have some accountability, and then now what? What is next? How do we actually change the mindset? How do we actually work together as men and women to live in a different way together where sexuality is natural and we're not abusive with it? Okay, excellent. Well, thank you for summing up... uh exactly what's going on here. Um, sometimes it's difficult to make sense. We are approaching the end of this podcast episode, so I'd like to ask you a final two-part question. Uh, I think we've spoken a little bit about your motivations uh, to address uh, sexual violence, having personally experienced it. I'd now like to ask you to reflect upon the legacy that you hope you will leave uh, at the end of your career and your advocacy efforts. What do you hope will be the impact of all of the work that you're currently engaged in? Thank you so much, Jordan. This is, I love it. You have such great questions. So the legacy, what I'm actually currently doing now is passing on my method. It's a psychosexual method. And doctors are learning, gynecologists are learning it, osteopaths, different practitioners who are working directly with women. And the idea is that there's no separation between the psyche, between how we feel and perceive, and the body. And that's a, a, it's a very old concept, but it's new in our modern day. And so the legacy is to bring in direct relationship with sexuality, that sexuality is natural, that it's something that we can fully claim and become fully responsible with and enjoy, and then go on with our lives and birth our genius, birth our real gifts so that we're not sitting here obsessed and trying to fix ourselves and make ourselves right and and go around feeling a bit neurotic about having a sensual and sexual body and actually feeling relaxed and, and having energy and being able to bring that, uh, that which we would love into the world in our own unique way for each individual. So that's the legacy is to really empower every individual to know that they matter that their voice matters, that their story matters, and above all, the genius that is within them really matters, and it's great for them to bring it out into the world. And that has been Saida Desilet, an entrepreneur, an author, and a survivor of sexual violence herself, who speaks uh, about uh, her efforts to uh, facilitate recovery from sexual violence and to reduce the future incidence of sexual violence, uh, seeking to uh, recognize sexual sovereignty as a human right, and uh, through her work, uh, Saida hopes to uh, simply acknowledge sexuality as a natural part of the human condition and allow uh, a, create a safe environment in which individuals can pursue 
uh, whatever it is they'd like to do without feeling threatened or unsafe uh, as a result of uh, sexual predatory behavior. So, Saida, I'd like to thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Jordan. It's been an absolute pleasure. Today's show is brought to you by Warby Parker. They're an online eyeglasses company that for $95 provides you prescription lenses and frames, which is basically a third to a fourth the cost of getting eyeglasses uh, traditionally through your uh, optometrist. I know that I have terrible vision and uh, I'm always needing uh, to pay a few hundred dollars when I get a new pair of eyeglasses. So that's the thing I like about Warby Parker is it's basically the same quality you'd otherwise get, but it's for a fraction of the cost. So if you go to warbyparkertrial.com slash public interest, uh, using that uh, URL at the very end, uh, referencing this podcast, uh, you'll get a special free five-day trial try-on with five pairs, five days, 100% free. They ship it out for free, and you can return them all for free. So again, that's warbyparkertrial.com slash public interest. Uh, enjoy. This has been another episode of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. I'll remind you to subscribe on publicinterestpodcast.com, iTunes, or your favorite podcast listening platform. And please join the conversation by calling 240-630-0380 or emailing engage at publicinterestpodcast.com. Thanks for listening.